Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to the Gospel of Matthew. We use these excursus episodes to dig a little deeper into something that we've encountered in a particular book of the Bible that we just didn't have the opportunity to deal with adequately within the time constraints of a normal episode. Most of our episodes here at End of the Word are about 20 minutes long, so sometimes you just have to stick a pin in something and come back to it later, and that's what we're trying to do here. In this excursus episode, I want to come back to something that Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So if you remember the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has just foretold the destruction of the temple. The disciples are amazed by this, and they ask Jesus a question that turns out to be far more complicated than they were capable of understanding. They said, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, they assumed that they were asking one question. They couldn't imagine anything more catastrophic or apocalyptic than the destruction of the temple. And therefore, they assumed that this event that Jesus had been talking about would herald the end of the age and the dawning of the kingdom of God. Jesus, of course, knew better. And therefore, he responded as if they were asking two questions rather than one. He knew that the sack of Jerusalem in AD 70 would be catastrophic, but it wouldn't be the end of the world, nor would it immediately usher in the fully consummated kingdom of God. And therein lies the interpretive challenge in the Olivet Discourse. The the two events are related, just not in the way that the disciples had assumed. In essence, the near calamity of the destruction of the temple serves as a lens for anticipating the far calamity associated with the end of the age. The disciples assumed that Jerusalem's destruction would precipitate the great calamity, whereas Jesus understood that it merely anticipated the great calamity. And once you understand that, the mystery of the Olivet Discourse begins to unravel for you. It starts to make sense. According to this understanding, then, in verses 5 to 8, Jesus is speaking about a variety of preliminary events, wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes. These may be compared to the experience of birth pangs. They open the door, but they're not the baby. Between the preliminaries and the main event, there will be a couple of key indicators to watch for, Jesus says. A great apostasy in which many will fall away and the completion of the Great Commission in which this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's verse 14. And then the end will come. So in this excursus episode, I want to drill down on one of those trigger events. They're actually related, but I want to drill down specifically on the great apostasy, this great falling away. Many will fall away. I want to talk about that. I want to understand what that is and how we can know when that event has come upon us. Now, as always, the best commentaries on the teaching of Jesus are, in fact, the writings of the apostles of Jesus. 
And so we're very interested in the things they said about this event and the characters associated with it. Most scholars believe, as I do, that when the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is talking about the rebellion that must take place just prior to the return of Christ, he's talking about the same thing that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24. The Greek word apostasia, which Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, can be translated as apostasy, or falling away, or betrayal, or rebellion, as it is in the ESV translation. So it seems reasonable to assume that we're talking about the same event here. Paul, commenting on Jesus, is saying to the Thessalonians that it can't be that the day of the Lord has already come. That's that's not possible because the trigger event hasn't happened yet. We haven't had the great falling away. We haven't had the great apostasy, a feature of which is the appearing of the last great antichrist character. That hasn't happened, Paul says. So obviously the day of the Lord must still lie in the future. So both Paul and Jesus associate this great rebellion, this great falling away, this great apostasy with the time just prior to the climactic return of the Lord. So same event. Therefore, we want to look at both of these passages to try and develop our understanding of this important biblical theme. We want to try and figure out what exactly is meant by the great apostasy. We want to figure out roughly when it will happen, what causes it. We need to know who this man of lawlessness is, what he will do, uh, who the restrainer is, and then lastly, whether the events that are going on now could in some way be connected to this last great end times event. Obviously, then, we have a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so we better get started. First of all, then, what exactly is the great apostasy? Probably the best way to do this will be for me to read in full the two passages where this event is described. Let's begin with Jesus. In the Olivet Discourse, in that middle section, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's Matthew 24, 9 to 14. All right, so during a time of increasing tribulation, when Christianity is hated by all nations, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Simultaneously, however, the task of world evangelism will be completed, and then the end will come. All right, that's what Jesus said. Now let's hear from the Apostle Paul. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 4, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Closed quote. So Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, do not be deceived. You haven't missed the coming of Christ. The day of the Lord is not something you can miss, he says. You will know that you are in it. And there are some trigger events that have to happen before it. Specifically, the great rebellion or the great apostasy. Again, Paul uses the word apostasia, which means falling away or rebellion. That has to happen first, he says. And associated with that will be this character known as the man of lawlessness. That hasn't happened yet. That person hasn't been revealed yet. Therefore, Paul says, obviously, the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. So everybody can just settle down. That's the, the main idea that he's working there. So putting that all together, the great apostasy is obviously some kind of massive falling away from the Christian faith. This isn't a rebellion against the government by unbelievers. This is a rebellion against Christian belief and practice by previously believing and associating people, at least in some nominal sense. Anthony Hokema, for example, says here, the apostasy will occur within the ranks of the members of the visible church, closed quote. G.K. Beale holds the same basic view. He says, the point Paul appears to be making is that the visible church community within which true saints exist, will become so apostate that it will be dominantly filled with people who profess to be Christian, but really are not. The church will continue to profess to be Christian, but most in it will actually not be true believers, closed quote. So there's going to be a massive departure from the Christian faith within the membership of the covenant community. People who say they are Christians are going to depart from Christian teaching. Whether they still call themselves Christians or not, who knows? Whether they still call their churches churches or whether they switch to community centers, who knows? The point is they are no longer believing what Christians have historically believed nor behaving the way that Christians have historically behaved. They have departed. They have rebelled. Now, I've used both the word believe and the word behave because both seem to be in view here. Jesus says many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So false prophets are, are leading people astray. So that seems to speak to wrong beliefs creeping into the church. And, and then because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That seems to speak to behavior. So there does seem to be some, some massive departure from both right doctrine and right or appropriate Christian behavior. And, and we would expect that because wrong doctrine is going to lead to wrong affections and wrong behavior. That's just how it works. And that seems to be what is being predicted here. Now, you might say, wait a second, this sort of thing is always happening over the course of church history. Uh, a weird idea or some kind of defective doctrine creeps in and then a bunch of people believe it. And then, of course, they start acting in a, in a harsh or condemnatory sort of way towards others. Then eventually they hive off into some sort of cult or they just leave altogether. That is always happening. So are we looking for the great apostasy or just a general pattern of apostasy in every generation? That's a good question. Hokema, again, is useful here. He says, in the New Testament, however, we find predictions both of a continuing or recurring apostasy from the true worship of God throughout the history of the church and of a final apostasy, which will precede the parousia, closed quote. 
Then with reference to the specific passage we're looking at, 2 Thessalonians, he goes on to say, both the definite article and the statement that this happening must precede the parousia indicate that what is predicted here is a final climactic apostasy just before the end time, close quote. All right, so again, think of it like birth pangs. In every generation, there's there's probably going to be an apostasy, a birth pang, a falling away that serves to purify the church and that cracks open the door another inch for the coming great apostasy and the coming man of lawlessness. These little apostasies are not the great apostasy, but they are connected. Paul seems to be making that point exactly in verse 7 when he says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So there's a principle of lawlessness that would spiral out of control and become the great apostasy if it were not presently being restrained. So God has his hand on the throttle, as it were. He doesn't want conditions to spiral out of control such that the cause of world mission would be compromised. So he manages the devil's chain. He holds that leash. He he, he lets it out when he needs to, brings it in when he needs to. There's a principle here. You might even say a spirit of apostasy, seducing, confusing, luring, and enticing. It's always working. It would always expand if permitted. But currently, that principle, that power is restrained. But then at some point in the future, that restraint will be removed. And the seduction will be amplified, and the rebellion will be rampant, and then the end will come. G.K. Beale says here, Paul sees that though this fiend has not yet come so visibly as he will at the final end of history, he is nevertheless already at work in the covenant community through his deceivers, the false teachers, closed quote. All right. So that's the great apostasy. We've talked a little bit about the mystery of lawlessness, how that's restrained. We'll get back to that in a minute. But that's that's the great apostasy. And that raises a whole bunch of other related questions. The first one for me, anyway, is this. What causes the great apostasy? Now, on one level, of course, you could just say the man of lawlessness or the mystery, the principle of this, the, the spirit of lawlessness. That's what causes it. If we wanted to import Johannine terminology here, we could just say the whore of Babylon causes it. In the book of Revelation, the whore of Babylon represents the spirit of seduction that attempts to lure God's people away from their faith in Christ. She's a spirit, a spirit that animates a culture and that is often propped up by rebellious government. The whore of Babylon rides upon the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. So, yes, we could point to spiritual agency, and that wouldn't be wrong. We, we could say that this spirit of seduction, aided and abetted by hostile and demonic government forces, works to corrode and corrupt a wide swath of nominal Christianity and to calve off a significant portion of the visible church. That would be true on one level. But there are other factors that we ought to take into account as well. The passage in Matthew 24 mentions tribulation, persecution, and theological confusion. So hard times, social and cultural pushback, formal and even fatal government sanction, all in an atmosphere of novelty, ignorance, and heresy, obviously that in some way creates the perfect set of circumstances for a major structural collapse within the visible institutional church of Jesus Christ. However, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we would have to say that ultimately 
The cause of the great apostasy is the removal of that person or principle of restraint. Paul says in verses 6 to 7 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So according to Paul, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We talked about that already. But something is restraining that. Something's pressing down. Something's holding the leash. There's there's a, a principle, a force, but something from God or something that we would associate with God, we'll get into that in just a minute, is, is holding the leash to maintain space and opportunity for the advance of the gospel among the nations. So imagine a yard with a, a garden in it that needs to be planted. The yard has a dog in it that strains and barks and froths at the end of his chain, but the chain has been shortened. And so the operating space for anyone working in the yard is actually quite considerable. But then at some point near the end of the task, the chain is suddenly lengthened. The yard is suddenly inhospitable. But the actual damage is minimal because the seed is already in the ground and the workers are already on their way out the gate. That seems to be more or less the picture you get when you combine these two passages together. The point is, ultimately or immediately, however you want to look at it, the cause of the great apostasy is the lengthening of the chain. It is the removal of restraint that allows the powers and forces of lawlessness and seduction to operate at their maximum capacity. It is explicitly when the restraint is removed that the man of lawlessness is able to emerge and take center stage in this end times drama. All right, so we've got a couple things to talk about here. First of all, who is the man of lawlessness? Many authors and commentators treat the terms man of lawlessness and antichrist as completely interchangeable. So, for example, in Sam Storm's book, Kingdom Come, chapter 17 has the title, The Antichrist in Biblical Eschatology, a study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, but the term antichrist is never actually used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The term antichrist is a Johannine term. The apostle John uses it frequently. He says in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. 1 John 2.22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 4.3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Second John 1, 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. All right, so Antichrist is clearly John's favorite term for this character, and through his writings, it has become our favorite term generally as well. But the Apostle Paul never uses it, but I think it's clear that it refers to the same person Paul is talking about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Certainly, Sam Storms understands it that way, and most commentators treat it that way. Uh, clearly, we're talking about the same end times character. So, Leon Morris, for example, says here, Paul was writing of someone, speaking obviously about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul was writing of someone who would appear only at the end of the age. The man of lawlessness is an eschatological figure, closed quote. So, this is the end times opposer, the eschatological figure, the end times opposer of the people of Christ. Uh, 
Now, again, just like with the great apostasy, there are forerunners of the Antichrist. There is, as Paul said, a mystery of lawlessness already at work. So just as John says in his letters about Antichrist is, is here, but also coming, every generation probably has an Antichrist figure, just like every generation has a, a birth pang apostasy, as it were. Almost as if the devil is, is trying to bring his child into the world. He's trying to get the man of lawlessness through the door. But the attempt in every generation is ultimately abortive. These figures fall short. They aren't able to bring about the fullness of the devil's plan. Remember, the devil's got a plan. God's got a plan. The mystery of God is that God so uses the devil's plan that it accomplishes his plan, right? But, but the devil wants to get his man through the door. But it always falls short. The time isn't right. The, the permission is not great enough. The leash is not long enough. So the attempt must be made again. But eventually, the leash will be lengthened. The window of opportunity will be widened. The birth canal will be fully dilated. Choose your metaphor. And the devil will be able to affect his wicked parody of the incarnation. A man of lawlessness, a purely evil human being, will be born and he will be wholly focused upon the eradication and dismantling of the Christian faith. He will wage war on the people of God and on God himself before ultimately being thrown down by Christ at the time of his coming. All right, let's quickly survey what the Bible has to say about this end times character. It's hard to know how far back to go uh, in order to begin the story. There's a sense in which you could probably start in Genesis 3.15 or Genesis 4. But that would make for a very long and cumbersome narrative. It will probably be most helpful for us to start in the book of Daniel, specifically chapters 7 through 10. In those chapters, we meet a character, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who serves as a sort of pattern or illustration in advance of this character that John refers to as the Antichrist and Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness. Tremper Longman III, in his commentary on Daniel, says that Antiochus becomes an apt symbol for the one Christians know as the Antichrist, closed quote. In Daniel 7.25, it says about him, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time, closed quote. That time, times, and half a time is generally understood to refer to three and a half years, right? Time, one year, times, two years, half a year. Add it all up, three and a half years. And that was roughly the amount of time that Antiochus Epiphanes was wreaking his havoc among the Jewish people. For three and a half years, Antiochus Epiphanes was given a long leash to harass and harry the people of God. He wore them out. He ground them down. He tried to impose Hellenizing holidays, so holidays associated with the Greek pantheon, the Greek religion. To Hellenize means to, to make Greek. He imposed these Hellenizing holidays, Hellenizing customs and laws upon them. He tried to erase their Jewishness. He tried to erase their faith in God. But then we're told in verses 26 to 28, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, 
His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. Daniel 7, 26 to 28. So at the height of his power, in the midst of his attempts at eradication and extermination, suddenly decisions are made in heaven. His kingdom comes to an end. His dominion is handed over to the saints. Someone else shall rule over them benevolently, and everyone lives happily ever after. Here is the end of the matter. Well, that sounds for all the world like the end of the story Jesus is telling in Matthew 24. Things are going to be bad. Persecution is going to be intense. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, right? So suddenly there's a, there's a change. Things are going to be bad. And then all of a sudden things are going to be good. The end. Well, that also sounds like the story Paul is telling. Actually, Paul's story is even more abrupt. He says in verses 6 to 7 that the man of lawlessness can't emerge yet because of the restrainer, but then the restrainer or the restraint will be removed. And he says in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So he will come, he will die, end of story. All of these stories seem to be talking about a brief intense period of persecution and opposition that is brought to a very sudden end by the glorious catastrophic coming of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So in summary, uh, this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will emerge very near to the end of history. Once the leash is lengthened, he will actively, forcefully, politically, and culturally oppose the people of God for a short period of time, perhaps three and a half years, or perhaps that's just a symbolic meaning. The, the idea being long enough, long enough for, for his work to be severe, for his work to be brutal, for, for this to be a, a test and a trial and a sifting of the church, long enough, but not too long. Well, however you understand that, symbolically, literally, however, he will wear us out, he will grind us down for a short period of time, and then all of a sudden, the Lord will return, the Antichrist will be vaporized, the judgment seat will be established, and the eternal reign of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth will begin. Praise the Lord. So that's the story of the man of lawlessness. But the story itself raises a few other questions. What, what's the relationship between the man of lawlessness and the great apostasy? How is he connected? What, what role does he play? Again, we go back to the book of Daniel to sort of get the general pattern. Antiochus Epiphanes is an illustration in advance. His, his story, told in miniature, anticipates the story told ultimately at the end. So he's our best guide in terms of anticipating the actions of the Antichrist in the great end times apostasy. Now, obviously, as already mentioned, he attempted to use the machinery of the culture and the state to erase and eradicate the Jewishness of the covenant people. He forced Jewish males to compete naked in athletic competitions. He sent people around to seize and destroy copies of the Torah. He forbade circumcision, etc. So we should anticipate something similar. Cultural conformity will be enforced. Copies of the Bible will be seized. Conversion to Christianity will be criminalized. But in Daniel 8, we see that the ambitions of this man are ultimately cosmic in scale. He wants to be more than the boss down here on earth. He has ambitions that stretch into the spiritual realm. 
So Daniel 8, 9 to 11, for example, says, out of one of them came a little horn. Little horn here represents a, a, a particular leader that grew out of a particular kingdom. So out of one of them grew a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Closed quote. <laughs> All right. What in the world does that mean? Who, who is the prince of the host that, that Antiochus appears to rival in the, in the great scheme of things? Commentators debate all of this. It's, it's strange language. It, it, it's so unusual. It's an outrageous statement. Some say it refers to Michael the archangel. Some say Gabriel, the hero of God. We don't know. We just know that the spiritual battle here is obviously very intense. Lines are being blurred between the earthly and the heavenly. There's a pitched battle going on. And for a time, at least in terms of appearance, it looks as though the outcome is in doubt. So bottom line, I mean, we could get into the weeds and try to parse some of these symbols, but bottom line, this is a man of enormous ambition and overreaching pride. That much is glaringly obvious. And of course, that goes right along with what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He describes the man of lawlessness as one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Closed quote, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. So, I mean, that appears to come right out of the book of Daniel. Paul, his prophecy of, of this end times man of lawlessness appears to draw heavily upon the historical reality that was Antiochus Epiphanes. And that probably goes right back to Jesus. Right after Jesus says in Matthew 24, 12 to 14, the love of many will grow cold. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And then the end will come right after that. He says in the very next verse, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, closed quote. So this is it, Jesus says. When, when the Daniel story repeats itself, <laughs> run for the mountains. At, at that point, you're living within a hair's breadth of the day of the Lord. So this is the last act in the play before the final curtain falls. And Jesus is saying, you don't want to be under that curtain when it falls. So feel free at that point to run for the mountains. Now, since Jesus identifies the repeat of the Daniel story, and specifically something he calls the abomination of desolation, since he identifies that as the trigger event, obviously we want to know what that means. So let's drill down on that. Daniel uses some version of this expression four times in chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. Now, the expression itself is hard to interpret. So Luke, in his gospel, helpfully provides us with an inspired interpretation. In Luke 21, verses 20 to 22, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is 
written. So Luke, recording the same sermon, the, the same speech that Jesus was giving, talking about the same events, includes a couple of other things that Jesus said, I, I would assume on the assumption that it will help us better understand what is meant here. He fleshes out the description of this abomination of desolation. The text there in Luke seems to be saying that when the Romans begin to march on Jerusalem, right? That's the, that's the point at which no time is to be spared. Run. So that's the application of the pattern to the first great birth pang in AD 70. So if we extrapolate that, we might say that the abomination of desolation is going to happen when the man of lawlessness appears to be on the cusp of victory, as, as when the armies of Rome began to choke Jerusalem to death. When, when the man of lawlessness has his hands on all the levers, when he has all the, the cards in his hand, humanly speaking, right, so to speak, he has us under his heel in that moment of confidence. To use the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians, he exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So how do we understand that? How do we put that together? Are we, are we taking that literally? Now, of course, there is no temple of God, right? Physically speaking, the temple was destroyed in AD 70 in the, in the first great uh, birth pang. So how would this prophecy work out today or at any point in the future? Herman Ritterboss is helpful here. He says, to sit in the temple is a divine attribute, the arrogating to oneself of divine honor, closed quote. Now, most commentators understand it in that sense. I, Howard Marshall, F.F. Bruce, for example, understand the expression in that vein. Bruce, for example, sees this as a graphic way of saying that he plans to usurp the authority of God, closed quote. Now, there are some who think this prophecy necessitates the rebuilding of the actual physical temple in Jerusalem, but that would be to run completely against the grain of New Testament theology. The phrase temple of God is used 10 other times in the New Testament outside of this passage here in 2 Thessalonians. And in nine of those 10 times, it refers to the Christian church. So actually, I think we would be best in line with the text that the most literate reading of this sentence, given what we've read in the rest of the New Testament, would be to assume that once the Antichrist has the church seemingly completely in his power, once he has his boot on our neck, he will attempt to force the church in some way to acknowledge his divinity. That's the trigger moment. Sam Storms says here, the way this language is used elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul himself, makes it unlikely that it could refer to anything other than the church, the body of Christ, the only temple in which God is pleased ever again to dwell, closed quote. So I'm not sure what else this could mean. At the height of this great persecution, when people are falling away left, right, and center, when the church has been reduced to a tiny, seemingly pathetic shell of its former self, this man of lawlessness will seek to have himself declared and worshipped as a god. When that happens, run for the mountains, because the end of all things is at hand. All right, that's what's going to happen according to these various prophecies. And as we alluded to earlier, ultimately, the only thing holding this back is something or someone called the restrainer. So we need to figure out what that is or, or who that is. Who or what is the restrainer? Let me 
read to you again the key passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 to 7. Paul says, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So the tricky bit here, as you can probably tell, even in English, is this switch from neuter to masculine terminology. We have the neuter gender in verse 6 and the masculine gender in verse 7. You know what is restraining. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So are we looking for a he or an it? That's the, the basic question here. Historically, a lot of commentators identified the restrainer with the Roman Empire. Tertullian, for example, went that route because the Roman Empire could be referred to as an it if you were talking about the empire itself or a he if you were speaking about the emperor. And, and there is some warrant for that approach. In Daniel, there is a similar grammatical switching back and forth when talking about kingdoms and kings. In several of the visions, we have kings and kingdoms switching back and forth interchangeably. We talk about Babylon and, and its characteristic king, Nebuchadnezzar. We talk uh, about Persia and its characteristic king, Cyrus, Greece, and Alexander, Roman Caesar, etc. So that could be it. Except that Rome is gone and the man of lawlessness hasn't come. So some say that it is government generally and particular leaders that, that hold this back. But that seems less likely, and it doesn't seem to align with the whore riding on the beast imagery either, so I think that identification is less plausible. Others have said that it refers to an angel, and there is, again, a connection to Daniel here. In Daniel 10, we meet a divine being, perhaps an angel. Some say it is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, whatever. We have a divine being who is opposed by another spiritual being, and who is assisted by a third spiritual being, Michael, in bringing about some sort of purpose that has ramifications in both the earthly and spiritual realms. So Daniel 10, 13-14 says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. That's Daniel 10, 13 to 14. So there was a battle in the unseen realm that once concluded opened the way for some events to take place down here on earth. That's what happens in Daniel 10. And so some people say that that must be what is meant here. And that could be. He who now restrains it could refer to the same angel or to Michael or to some other angel. That could be. However, I think the simplest answer is to say that he who now restrains it is God. God is ultimately the one who holds the leash. He is the one who opens and shuts. He is the one who manages the timeline on all these events. In the book of Isaiah, in the last chapter, when issues of the new heavens and the new earth are being discussed, God says in verse 9, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb? says your God, close quote. So here God says, if I ordain all of these various birth pangs, do you think I would fail to deliver the baby? <laughs> I've got this, God says. I know when to open. I know when to shut. I know when to stand in the way. I know when to step out of the way and let events proceed. In fact, the Hebrew word he uses in verse 9, translated by the ESV as shut, literally means to restrain. 
it is the Hebrew word atzar. So he literally says in Isaiah 66, verse 9, shall I always restrain? The implied answer is no. When the time comes, I will remove the restraint. I will fully open the womb and everything planned and ordained shall come to pass. So I think that the he in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 has to be God. It fits what we know about God and it fits the way the Apostle Paul tends to talk about these things. In the closest parallel passage we have in 1 Timothy 6, 14 to 15, Paul tells his people to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, close quote. Now, in that passage, he is clearly God. God will decide when the day of the Lord will be. He will decide when to send Jesus back to the earth. He is in total control of the timeline. So it's easy to imagine Paul saying, without feeling the need to further explain, you know what is restraining him if he's referring to God, the only one he seems to ever refer to as being in charge of all these sorts of things. So God is is in charge, and, and he's the he. And the it, therefore, must be the plan and foreknowledge of God. God has a plan. The plan itself is what currently restrains the entrance of the man of lawlessness. Only when it is the right time will God lengthen the leash and will the final events begin to unfold. And of course, God may use various things, various agents, to restrain the mystery of lawlessness and the forces and influences of seduction. He may use governments. He may use particular human characters. He may use particular angelic characters for certain aspects of the task, but ultimately he is the he, and his will and plan is the it. And again, that fits so well with the other things we're told about the management of this timeline. The Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, 9. The length of time in the plan here has nothing to do with disinterest or inability on God's part. That's what Peter wants us to understand. As if God was having a a hard time getting this done and and pressing through his agenda. No, no, that's, that's not the issue. Rather, the delay has to do with the progress of the gospel. As Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. That's the issue. That's the factor that God is observing and taking into account. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So Peter assumes that what what he's saying here accords perfectly well with what what Paul's been teaching his people, presumably in passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The delay is is managed by God as part of his plan to ensure that the gospel of salvation is extended to all the nations. Once that has been completed, the leash will be extended, the great end times struggle will begin, and then the end will come. Which leads to our final question. Is the great apostasy happening now? The state of global Christianity right now is very interesting to observe. On the one hand, Christianity is thriving in sub-Saharan Africa, It's thriving in much of Asia, it's thriving in much of Latin America, and it is thriving even under some very difficult circumstances in China and Iran. So in one sense, these are very heady days. 
In fact, according to Purdue University sociologist Feng Gang Yang, I hope I'm saying that right, the Christian population in China grew at an average annual rate of 7% between 1950 and 2010. If this trend continues, Yang calculates that the proportion of China's population that identifies as Christian could grow from 5% in 2010 to 67% in 2050. Are you hearing that? China could be a majority Christian country within our lifetime. That's incredible. Thanks be to God. So there's some really, really, really good news out there and also some really bad news. According to a recent Pew Forum research paper, Europe's Christian population is expected to shrink by about 100 million people over the next few decades, dropping from 553 million to 454 million. In North America, the situation is only slightly better. The same study suggests that the Christian share of the U.S. population will decline from 78% in 2010 to just 66% in 2050. Now, of course, it goes without saying that these are census figures. We aren't looking into anyone's heart here to determine the true state of their soul. We're just going on the basis of census data. I seriously doubt that 78% of the U.S. population was truly regenerate in 2010 or that 66% of the U.S. population will be regenerate in 2050, short of a great move of God, which we should pray for. But but the trend is what we're looking at here. The, the trend reflects what we all feel in our bones right now as we live and move in this culture. There is a great falling away taking place within the Western and Northern world. Christianity feels as though it is in swift decline in Europe and North America, and the statistics appear to bear that out. But is this the great apostasy or just a great apostasy? And of course, there's no way to know, at least not yet. Just like when you're having a baby, there's no way to know whether this is a significant birth pang or the significant birth pang. Is this the pang that positions the baby or are there more to come? You, Of course, you only know when you see the baby. And so will it be here. What we can say is that it feels as though things are ramping up. The mystery of lawlessness is surely and manifestly at work. We are nearer to the return of the Lord now than when we first believed. So we should stay alert and we should watch. And thanks to Daniel and Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we know what to watch for. G.K. Beale says helpfully here, Paul is saying that even now the false teachers that have been prophesied by Daniel and Jesus are with us. This means that the end time great tribulation has begun in part. The prophecy of the apostasy and coming of the man of lawlessness into the temple of the new covenant church has started fulfillment, closed quote. So it has started. The mystery of lawlessness is stirring. The whore of Babylon is whispering. The dog is straining at the leash. The task of world missions is making incredible progress. And the love of many in other parts of the world is growing cold. The evangelical church in North America is writhing in agony from a thousand self-inflicted wounds. The big tent of our grandparents' day is now a convulsing, chaotic, tribal circus. Is this the great apostasy or merely a great apostasy? Only time will tell. Even still, 
become Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to this special excursus episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. And you can also organize and arrange and access all the Into the Word content by downloading the Into the Word app. You can find the Into the Word app wherever you find your apps. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. 